there's an event, and then what happens is you have to figure out how to respond. That is very different than COVID, where the crisis kept evolving. It's like you didn't have one event and say, okay, how are we going to deal with it? What happens is you're dealing with the event, and then the next day something changes in the event. So it's a rolling crisis, which makes it even more difficult to try and respond because the team has to be unbelievably adaptable and willing to take risks and willing to make decisions in a huge vacuum or whatever I call it of uncertainty, right? Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Laparta. Thank you very much for joining me and welcome back from the summer break. We've had some really excellent conversations and episodes from the archive over the last four weeks of August. So if you haven't listened to those, if you've been on holiday, go back and grab those as well. But we're back with a new guest and we're back uh, with style or in style. Our new guest is John Cohen. Now, John is a vascular surgeon turned healthcare leader and policy expert. He's a former CEO and executive chairman of Bioreference Laboratories and is the author of a book called Swab. And I'm going to do something I don't usually do at the beginning of a podcast. And I'm going to just read an extract from the preface to the book, because I think it positions John better than I could if I tried to just reword this for myself. And I think it will give you an insight into why I'm delighted to welcome John to join us on the podcast. So here's what it says at the start of the book. Swab goes behind the scenes to tell the story of how bioreference laboratories, working with no roadmap, no federal guidance or support, and no prior pandemic experience, established processes to provide testing to every imaginable segment of the American public, including cities, counties, states, hospitals, physicians, nursing homes, federally qualified health centres, urgent care facilities, public schools, colleges, employers, and manufacturers of all types, Entertainment companies and public venues, professional sports teams, movie production companies, cruise ships, casinos, prisons, airlines, and of course, the general public. Bioreference outmaneuvered competition 10 times its size and rose to national prominence as the first on many COVID-19 testing frontiers. The first and exclusive provider that allowed the NBA to complete their season in the bubble. The first and exclusive provider of the testing that allowed the NFL to play 256 games, the playoffs and the Super Bowl. The first to perform testing for New York City public schools, the largest school system in the country, allowing hundreds of thousands of students to return to their classrooms. Provide testing for the first cruise ship to sail, Royal Caribbean, when the CDC order was lifted, allowing cruise lines to sail again. And everywhere where we tested, as many as many as 24 ships out of eight ports every day. The first and exclusive provider of the testing that allowed the National Hockey League, Major League Soccer and a majority of the Major League Baseball teams to keep playing throughout their seasons. The first to test thousands of fans so that they could attend a playoff game, Buffalo Bills versus the Indianapolis Colts. And the first to develop large-scale testing programs for testing thousands of people within one hour of special events they were attending at Madison Square Garden in Manhattan, the Chase Centre in San Francisco, and Barclays Centre in Brooklyn, New York. 
hopefully you can understand why a i chose to read that extract rather than try and paraphrase it because there's so much there and b why i don't normally read from books on the podcast but there is so much there and so many impressive achievements and the one that i want to hone in there is to do so against competition that was so much bigger than they were. So we, I've, I've tentatively themed uh, this episode where intuition goes to die, which is an epigraph at, at the front of the book. And, and I'll ask John about that during the conversation. But as if you're a regular leader to the podcast, you'll know that very often my theme uh, can change as the conversation flows. So let's let that conversation flow and welcome John Cohen to the Connected Leadership Podcast. John, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Andy. It's uh, great to be on. And when I listen to you read that, you know, it's a little bit of PTSD as I get reminded <laughs> of what we went through for two and a half years uh, to pull off the success that we did. So thank you for the uh, generous introduction. Well, I want to dig into that success and most importantly, how you adapted, how you got there uh, and ha- how you brought your team with you. But actually, before you do, I said to you beforehand that I might just change my questions entirely as we go. I'm going to do that from the beginning because you talk about this PTSD. One thing I didn't think about as I was reading your book and I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about is we'll talk a lot about how the world changed for you from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. How has the world changed from you from the pandemic uh, and coming back to relative normality over the last couple of years? Well, first off, um, I love to work. So, you know, we work literally, everybody says 24-7. We actually did work 24-7 for (laughs) close to two and a half years. There was no breaks because of what happened with COVID. And then, as you mentioned, you know, it just kept changing. And we kept having all of these issues that we had never predicted pop up every single day or every single week. So first, it was a, a significant amount of intensity. I took a break after that, after COVID, after two and a half years. It's amazing how quickly people do forget what happened and are are moving on. On the other hand, is I think there's an acute awareness that I think will never change relative to people getting, you know, a cold or feeling sick. It's like I think it's going to be generational before people don't think about COVID the first time they have a sneeze or they have a cough or they have a sore throat. So that's a big change for people. And I'm the same. I'm a physician, but. You know, every time I get sick, I said, oh, my God, do I have COVID again, right? Or am I going to need to get tested? So there's a little bit of, that's why I said this PTSD. There's there's a lot of remnants still that have occurred, you know, to everybody, which I'm not sure we're going to get over for quite some time. I think, you know, the other is um, I feel like I and people around me, most people are back to normal, you know, whatever normal means. So I I don't think there's any other lasting effect, meaning people have been desperate to get back to the lives they had beforehand. So that's where I am right now. And I think that's probably where most people are around me. Okay, so let's go back then to the very beginning of the pandemic. And when you realized that you were going to have a big part to play in this, you talk in the book about the lack of preparedness in the US for a major pandemic. We're going through what will be a very long COVID inquiry in the UK. And the same things are coming out about lack of preparedness already. In the book, you say all hell was about to break loose and we were on our own with no roadmap, no guidance and no prior pandemic experience. So when you're in that position and you know you've got to respond and you've got to respond quickly, where do you begin? So this is like what I'll call a buildup, right? In other words, it wasn't like we woke up and said, oh my God, there's a COVID pandemic and millions of people are going to die, right? 
what it was was a slow evolution of a of eventually an eruption quite honestly i mean it, it wasn't slow it depends on how you look at the time period but you know when we first heard about it, it it became a little obvious as a diagnostic company that something was happening and and we probably needed to begin to make preparations not knowing really what this thing would bring and so we gathered a team you'll see in the book i i had been talking to some folks about COVID back in February when the outbreak first occurred. I had been actually at the White House and had met with the vice president and the task force very early in March when the government had originally reached out to the commercial industry about whether or not we could help them or not. And I think that the real aha or scary moment for me is we had there was a CDC set of recommendations that came out very early in the process. And if you were a laboratory the CDC said that you had to make sure that anything you do was under what's called a BSL, Biological Safety Laboratory Level 3. Now, I don't get into too much details, but when you have something that's a BSL 3, that means that you really, really have a very dangerous pathogen. That's like, that's something that actually, you know, they're so worried that people are going to die from this, that you have this certain level of safety that you so when I had called the CDC, because the regulations were just so onerous that there was no way we could test, because they came out and said, you got to, you have to be at this level. That was for me, the aha moment, like, okay, this is like, really, they're not telling the American public, but this is really, really dangerous. And that was when I went back to the team, and we started discussing and saying, listen, this could be a very big deal. And we need to be able to figure out how we're going to scale. So that was the, I would say the moment in time where things changed for us. And when you go into that space, you you know that it's going to evolve. I think you say in the book, the only certainty seemed to be that every day something changed from the day before. How do you and your leadership team create the culture that can adapt and flow it as the situation demands? Was that already in place? Did you have to change behaviors, change the culture, or did everyone just get on board straight away? First of all, it was definitely not in place. I don't think anybody actually ever prepares for this kind of event. And the reason that I have, as you said, the epitaph at the beginning of the book that says, you know, COVID is where intuition goes to die, which literally sat on my whiteboard for two and a half years, is because in, in certain crises, you have a crisis, and I'll point to 9-11 because I was a little bit involved in that uh, afterwards. There's an event, and then what happens is you have to figure out how to respond. That is very different than COVID, where the crisis kept evolving. It's like you didn't have one event and say, okay, how are we going to deal with it? What happens is you're dealing with the event and then the next day something changes in the event. So it's a rolling crisis, which makes it even more difficult to try and respond because the team has to be unbelievably adaptable and willing to take risks and willing to make decisions in a huge vacuum or whatever I call it, of uncertainty, right? And the only way you can do that is the people around you need to be really comfortable with uncertainty in the future. Because if anybody's rigid in how they decide or how they perform, there's just no way they could get it done, right? So you you look at the data, you make a decision, you make a call, so, and a lot of times it's almost an audible, um, and you move on, and you're going to be right in some circumstances, and you're going to be wrong in, in other circumstances. But you have to be comfortable and the team has to be comfortable with that kind of environment. And how do you say it wasn't there before, that culture wasn't in place, and the team has to be comfortable with it. 
I'm making an assumption here that everyone realized the scale of what you were dealing with and did what they needed to do. But how challenging was it to shift that culture and how easy was it to bring people to where they needed to be? Well, if I look back, there's no question that the team was a seasoned team. We'd been together. I've been there only a year as the CEO. But it was a seasoned team of executives who very quickly got on board with how we were going to do this and felt comfortable. In this circumstance, it's not always mission-driven. And the reason I say mission-driven is because people very quickly understood this was really serious. People's lives were at risk. And what we were doing was something beyond routine laboratory testing that people get. Like, in other words, this had a major impact. So people really felt like we were rallying around a cause that really made a difference. And And that was incredibly pervasive during the two and a half years. I mean, I had thousands of people out there in the field working really long hours and exposing themselves to COVID because of the better good. And and remember at the beginning, then there were some people who wouldn't work, right? There were people who said, I'm not working in the lab. I don't know if this is contagious. I'm not going to bring this back to my family and put my family at risk. So there's all sorts of spectrums of people. But I, you know, I don't go too long, but I, I think that there's a certain amount of things in the human brain which I think are really important relative to why firemen run into fires, why police go to save people, why healthcare workers put themselves at life. There's something about the evolution of humanity where we have this desire to help. And whether it's the hit that you get as a result of that, meaning feeling good, but I think that's what happened during COVID. You talk about the people that said, I don't want to expose myself and my family which is very understandable how did you handle that and how did you create an environment where people could feel comfortable making the choice that was right for them if that's what you did right well there there are some people that wouldn't you know and and we don't want to work and work with other positions which was fine Uh, but the people that were we made a pretty big commitment to say the least to protecting people you know the ppe and the gowns and the gloves and the mask and everything else and the protective barriers so we put in place some really significant protocols to protect people as best we could. And quite honestly, in the two and a half years, never had an issue. We had a, a contamination issue related, unrelated to this, which turns out not to be a contamination issue. But at the time, you know, we thought we did, which made our protocols even more vigorous. But, you know, it was a matter of making sure people were adequately protected. You talk about everyone banding together for the greater good and the greater goal. As someone who talks about and focuses on professional relationships, did you notice something shift in the relationships between colleagues and team members, the silo mentality? Was there one before more than there was afterwards? And did you feel a cultural shift in the organization when it came down to how people engage with their colleagues across the organization? A hundred percent. I mean, there's no question that there was a banding together. There was a true, okay, how are we going to get it done mentality, which evolved pretty quickly. Everybody just said, let's just get it done. You know, you did in the introduction, we took on some really interesting clients and to do things that nobody had ever done before, right? So it was part of our culture that people would come to us and our answer was always, yes, we will do it and we will figure it out, which is some reason why we ended up being so successful. We became known, to be honest, as the customization company because people come to us and said, I heard you know how to do this, or I heard you guys could figure out how to do it. So it became very obvious to a lot of people that we were really flexible in how we approached the work and how we designed custom solutions for all these people who needed COVID testing. 
And every single one of them needed a, a different solution. So we became very evolved to be very flexible to be the customization company. And that is truly a cultural fit. I mean, that's what happened with the people, right? Everybody said, we began to believe that we could do anything. And we actually began to evolve into pretty much that we solved most. We, and we made some bad calls too, just for the record. I mean, we, we made some calls of things we should have done, which we didn't. And we made some calls on things we did, which we should have never did. But in the, uh, you know, if you look at the track record, we made more right calls than wrong. We've had a few episodes of the podcast focusing on the role of humor in relationships and a couple on improvisation. And yes, and as a mindset always comes up as something very powerful, having that yes and mindset. And you're giving us a live example of how it's translated into a business scenario. Since the pandemic, and I know you've moved on to other roles, have you been able to harness that spirit and what you learned from how everyone banded together and apply it in a non-crisis environment? Yes. So I've moved over and then I'm now the CEO of Talkspace. Talkspace is one of the largest telehealth mental health companies in the U.S. and the largest in-network provider, I mean, insurance-based telehealth mental health. And the team here, very different than my team by reference, a younger, a little bit more assertive, I would say. But we are in a position now where we're trying to deliver telehealth, mental health to thousands and thousands of people, particularly teens, universities, employers. And the team here has also, also banded together in a culture of, again, getting it done, figuring out how to get it done. So I think it's actually in some way for me, it, it's similar. But we did have some discussions about that. And I think, you know, since we're talking about leadership, you know, it's the, one of the most important things that I told the team probably the first day that I was here is you have to move away from is what I call a permission culture. The minute you have a culture where everybody thinks they have to ask permission for something from whether it's their boss or the CEO, there's just no way you could progress. You just can't get anything done, right? Everybody's waiting online to have daddy say yes. So that's really hard for people. I mean, I will tell you, no matter how high of an executive you are, it is really hard for people to be in a non-permission culture where you actually hone, you have to make decisions, own up to it, and not be worried about if you make mistakes. I can't emphasize enough how much that discussion needs to have so people feel like you've got their back, that you're not going to criticize them, you're not going to take them over the coals because they made a bad decision. People really have to feel empowered. People talk about empowerment, but it's not just talk. You need to talk about it with people and say, listen, I got your back, do your job, I trust that you're really good. You didn't get this level for no reason. That's a big deal for teams, just so you know. And yeah, to have the discussion. Completely. Since I wrote uh, my book, Just Ask, about the, the importance of being vulnerable, one of the things that came up a lot in the book and in subsequent discussions and presentations has been a, a culture that it, that, that accepts failure as, as part of the process and right. something that you learn from rather than blame for. Obviously, people have to be held to account when they do things they really shouldn't. But equally, for me, when you talk about a permission culture, you're saying it's okay to make a mistake as long as you share it quickly, we learn from it, and we move forward. So that's got to be a core part of it, isn't it? And you've got to create the right culture where people feel safe doing right. that. So, yeah, a, 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 it, it fits so much with a lot of the work I've done around that. So with that in mind and with the yes and mentality that you're talking about, the get it done mentality, going back to how you, you responded to the changing field during COVID, how did you 
harness your whole team. And it was a team that doubled very quickly. You went from 4,000 to 8,000 employees in four months, which is a, a whole other challenge. How did you harness that team to allow you to identify what the next challenge was, what the bottlenecks were, and find the most efficient solution as quickly as possible? So, you know, listen, you have a team of, you know, eight senior executives or, and, uh, so I think that the 4,000 to 8,000 is interesting. So I have an HR you know, director and a chief operating officer who really, in some sense, did this in tandem. One of the things which is frequently an, an issue, you know, we're publicly traded and, you know, corporations are always worried about the bottom line appropriately because you're a publicly traded company. You're basically owned by the shareholders, which means you have a financial and fiduciary responsibility to what happens. So the however there is, is that when you're in a, a situation like this, there's no way that you're going to know financially frequently about what the outcome is going to be, right? So what you have to do is is have this incredible balance between making decisions and judgments without having any clue about what the financial result is going to be. That's really hard to do, I can tell you, because your CFO is basically melting down every single day, <laughs> right? Literally, like, oh my God, like, you know, you guys are getting into this. You know, I can't believe how many people you're hiring. We have no idea what this is going to cost us. You know, you're, you're literally out there, you know, with all these agencies, recruiting people, putting people on, hiring them. We have no idea. Well, what is the revenue going to come through? Are we going to be able to bill and collect on these thousands of tests you're doing every day? It's a total gray, black box, whatever you want to call it, about what's going to happen financially. That is a huge problem in a crisis, right? Literally. And, and to their, their credit, the CFO is like trying to maintain some degree of normalcy because he or she knows that six months, a year down, someone's going to say, like, I can't believe you spent all this money or you lost all this money or you made all this money, right? I mean, that is a huge problem in a crisis like, of this sort. Because remember, we're hiring thousands of people. We're making huge investments in platforms. We're buying supplies. We have no idea what the other end of the equation is relative to collection of funds. So it's a big, big risk. And you again, back to you just have to be comfortable in that kind of uncertainty. And it's really hard. I'm just telling you. <laughs> yeah, look, you're making me. You're reminding me now of of some of the discussions that we had about like. Where are we going to find the money to do all this, right? So that's a big problem. Have you subscribed to the Connected Leadership Podcast yet to make sure that you never miss an episode? For more resources from Andy, including a regular tips newsletter, videos, blogs, and more podcasts, please visit andylapata.com forward slash insights. So how much of that do you take on your own shoulders as a CEO? And obviously- and how much do you turn to your senior leadership team for input and advice and support? No, you're, you're going to have it. Listen, there's always a discussion in the room. We make a decision and and we move on. And, and in the end, it's good or bad. It, it is the CEO's call, right? It's it's going to. It was my call to decide. You know, we were going to do this or we weren't going to do this, and we were going to invest in this or we weren't going to invest in this. I mean, there were multiple, multiple times during COVID where we had to make substantial decisions that were going to have a really big finance, really potentially big financial impact. Now, the, the good news of the story is we were roughly a $700 million company when we started. And at the height of COVID, we were about $1.7 Now, our profitability was reasonable, but I'm just saying is we made, obviously, you know, financially, we did fine. Uh, but, you know, there's no way that's all in retrospect. 
that perspective. Yeah. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You talk about in the book about various obstacles and lack of support you had to navigate through, particularly from a federal level. Can you perhaps share a couple of examples about where government didn't really give you the support that you needed in the time that you needed? And what did you learn about overcoming externally placed barriers, particularly where you felt that they were misguided or counterproductive? You've got an external stakeholder, in this case, federal government, and you feel that they're taking the wrong tack. How do you approach that in a way well, that they'll uh, go with you? Well, first, as you mentioned, the, the, there was no preparation for a pandemic on the diagnostic side. Zero. Like there was no stockpile. There was no reagents. There was no test. There, there was nothing. Right. So despite all the brilliant people who were around and everything else who were planning, nobody ever thought that there would be a communicable virus with basically no symptoms before it was communicable, which is on a respiratory sense, which basically nobody had seen that really before. Well, they did maybe in 1918, but the, nobody really thought that that was going to happen. So A, there was no preparation. B is when it began to evolve, the feds really never stepped in to help the people like us who could produce a large amount of tests within a short period of time to test a lot of people. And it's a long story, but because they supported also the university labs and public health labs, all these people, which are great and do a great job, have no ability to scale. So that was that was a huge issue. And then even as supplies began to come in, they really never used the Defense Act to direct the supplies to the people who could do the most testing. There were some discussions, but not even close to, to really doing what they needed to do to direct it. So that was you know a huge problem on their side, not preparing and then not stepping in when, when we needed it. So those are, you know, some of the examples of what happened. The other is there was no data infrastructure. And the reason that was so important by COVID is you would see the reports on the news, you know, there's an outbreak here or this city is going up. First off, we knew beforehand. I knew when things were going up because I had data about positivity of results of things coming in the lab. Secondly, is they never diverted resources in the country to where the country needed it the most. So like an example, I won't say which, but there, you know, there was a city that lit up in the west side of the country. And I remember saying, like, why didn't they tell us? I, I have like 30, 40,000 tests a day I probably could divert to that city. They never called me and said, could you do that? So we reached out directly. So the, the whole issue of data data flow, how you use it, diverting resources, none of that ever happened. It so, was, and, and how do you get the support that you need from particularly public sector when they might not be delivering it or they might be resistant to the ideas? And how do you navigate the different cultures between private and public sector? So one, we basically, you know, we just said they're not going to help us. We did it ourselves. So everything we got, basically all our supplies, everything else we acquired without them. Right. So we went everywhere and anything. I had one guy or at least yeah, one person, at least 20, literally 24 seven, you know, supply chain. That's all he did was look around for supplies everywhere and anything he could get and buy. You know, there, it was a terrible, you, you know, I mentioned the book. It was it was literally like I know a guy who knows a guy. Right. You know, there's a there's a truck at JFK, you know, that's got a bunch of, you know, PPE supplies. You guys want to buy it. You know, it was like it was, it was almost like a black market. It was horrible. Right. People negotiating and people want to cash. It was like out of the movies. I mean, it was crazy. The stuff that was going on of, of literally people like I know a guy who knows a guy. Do you want to buy something from him? So we did everything, basically everything ourselves on supply side. So that's how we ended up, you know, navigating in terms of how we directly 
supplied the government, everything we did was through direct connections, was through either people we knew were out, were reaching out, a city, a state, a community, a school district, uh, everybody either reached out or we actually reached out to them directly. So we just dealt directly with people. And actually, I mean, you mentioned both the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, and the New York City governor. Was it de Blasio at the time? Uh, the mayor, sorry, you had from your government experience, you had relationships with them already. So that was a key, a key part, I imagine, of your ability to do business with them. Yes. And, you know, in both circumstances, we all had known each other for quite some time. In both circumstances, they reached out to me because we knew each other and they, you know, said, okay, can you help us? And, and of course we did. So there was a lot of that going on. And plus we would reach out. So we would reach out to the, you know, the state governments of multiple different states and say, do you need help? We're here, you know, or a city, particularly cities, or the other way around. I tell people all the time, part of the reason I wrote the book is because we had so many stories and anecdotes of what happened. I, I literally, honestly, my phone would never stop ringing, right? And you, you can't imagine the people at the other end of the phone. <laughs> um, and I'm not kidding. I mean, there would be, you know, governors or mayors, or CEOs, of course, I pick up the phone and they go, hey, John, this is so-and-so, you know, CEO of X or governor of X state. I heard you guys, do you think you could help us? So I, I never know who was at the It was such a free-for-all, wild west, whatever metaphor you want to use. And I always say it's crazy. It was crazy. I mean, literally everybody's reaching out because remember, a lot of them were on their own. A lot of the states also never got the help they needed from the feds. So they were all on their own like we were on our own, like trying to figure it out. Who can I call? Who's going to have testing? You know, who's got the solutions? Who's got supplies? It was unbelievable time. So it sounds to me, and, you know, I'm very much looking at this now from my professional perspective as someone who teaches professional relationships. I'm bearing in mind that you competed very strongly against companies that were 10 times your size. A lot of this was down to either direct personal relationships of the type we just talked about or reputation and word of mouth that people right. have talked about you and it's got around. So would you say that that combination of your network and your network's ability to build your profile and your brand helped you as, as a key part of being able to compete with those large organizations and get in place for those big contracts? Yeah, 100%. There were a couple of th Those were absolutely contributed. There were a couple other things. One, I think I told you, we became not just customization, but I, I built my personal career on what I'll call partnerships, four or five businesses that I run. There is a certain way that you approach being a partner. Um, and I think people know that if, if I partner with them, they're going to get what they want. And it's never going to be easy. And there's going to be mistakes made. And there's going to be all sorts of events that are going to happen. But the fact that you have a relationship at a very senior level and you know that you could pick up the phone or they could pick up the phone is unbelievably helpful when you're in this kind of environment because things are just going to happen. There's no way you're going to predict it. What you want is you want to know that someone's actually, you know, is, is going to cover you and actually do the right thing. So partnerships are a really big deal. I would say the other thing that was very helpful to us is that a bunch of the larger competitors in the space, fortunately for them, they didn't really need to do what we needed to do because they were so big. COVID testing just flowed into them, essentially, right? They just turned the switch and so many patients and physicians and clinics and hospitals sent them COVID testing that they didn't need to do what we did. And what we did is essentially develop these, as I said, these turnkey operations where people knew if they hired us, 
we would do everything for them. What I mean by that is we would register the patients, we would go out and swab the patients, we would bring the, we built the logistics network to bring the COVID test back to the lab. We would test the lab and then we would send them the result. That was a huge relief for a lot of people, a lot of people running large entities. Because I get on the phone and they say, well, you know, what do I do about like getting the, the test back to you? Do I have to hire a bunch of nurses to swab people? Like, how does all this work? And I would say to them, we will do everything. And you could sense this sigh of relief, like, oh, you mean you'll do everything? I said, yes, we will do everything. So the, the ability for us to deliver a total solution was a huge differentiator for us in the market. You, you mentioned that partnerships are really important to you and that there are four or five steps that you think are core to a strong partnership. It would be remiss of me not to ask you what those four or five steps might be. So when I reach out, and I'll, I'll give an example. You know, when we were dealing with the NFL and, you know, was negotiating the, the end of the, we were getting to the end of the contract, you know, I had reached out uh, personally to uh, Goodell, who's the commissioner of the NFL in the U.S. And I reached out and I sent them this note. I said, whatever happens, you know, I will personally guarantee that my team will be there for you. Secondly, you have my number. If anything ever comes up, call me. And um, those kind of connections at a very senior level make a real difference for people if you're leading, leading large, large organizations, knowing that you have the commitment of the, the CEO or the leadership of the organization. And, and quite honestly, I do that now where we are in the telehealth, mental health space is when my commercial team are, are talking to large clients, I'm almost always on the phone on the first call, right? I, I want them to know that I personally have an interest in this and that I will personally make it happen if I can and that, you know, I'm available. And I think it sends a very important message to the client or the partner that you're totally vested. And then, of course, you can deliver. That's really what it is, is, is committing, right? Yeah. It, it, but that personal touch that personal assurance you've got my number not just delegating off to someone else correct will be absolutely key there uh what about your competitors we talked about your how you competed with your competitors but i want to sort of look at the partnerships element did you find that collaboration grew and competition shrunk um when everyone was in it together to try and meet the bigger goal of of meeting the need to face off covid or did things actually heighten on the competitive side because there were so many opportunities I, there? Honestly, I uh, unfortunately, there was so much testing to be done that it wasn't a matter of competing. It was just a matter of who was going to test where. There were some occasional what I call RFPs, you know, proposals that came out that we lost to other competitors like us. But in general, there was so much testing that needed to be done that it was just a matter of figuring out, you know, who was going to be where. So it wasn't a, it wasn't really a zero sum game where you had to steal market share. The market was just massive, right? There basically wasn't enough testing. Now, obviously there was a lot of doubt and fear and skepticism during COVID-19 that only got worse as things went on. How did you manage that? And how did you manage the level of misinformation that was, was out there, particularly in the, in the U.S.? What happened is evolved. And because it evolved, the technology also evolved. So this gets back to the issue we talked about of, of making some decisions about what direction? So one of the biggest, I'll give you an example, one of the biggest um, calls that we made, meaning trying to decide, 
was to get into is point of care or rapid testing on site. Now, remember, at the beginning, it doesn't exist. It did not exist. So sometimes six months after they began, the technology began to evolve that you could do COVID testing on site at different places and you could have a rapid test as you know, now everybody knows it's pretty easy, but at the time it didn't. So we, we made a really big decision that we saw that eventually this thing would morph into some lab-based testing, but a lot of it would move towards on site and rapid testing. So we, we invested heavily in, in that decision to move towards point of care. That was a huge decision for ours because we became at one point the largest point of care surveillance tester in the country um, because we were able to deliver solutions on site. So think about it, big, like you said, big events, Madison Square Garden, Barclays, fan testing, employers testing people when they came to work. There was just the whole, and that's not even talking about home testing, which was another issue, right? Is how do you get people testing at home? And then we opened up retail sites in New York where, you know, people would come in, you know, you, you get online or you register beforehand, you'd show up, you get a test, you wait 30 minutes and you could go. All of that evolved from point of care rapid testing. That was a really big decision that we made. On the other side is we never were able to perform home tests because we could never get it right. We tried and then we failed and we just moved on. That was a quote, that was a mistake for us. We probably should have leaned in heavily because a lot of testing moved to home testing at some point. It reminded me an important issue um, is, and I don't know how, I don't know how to des- describe how to get there, but it's the issue of being able to see what's coming. And the only way you, you do that, I think, is you have to be really, really well informed as a leader. That means being informed of what's going on in the crisis, this in this situation, COVID testing. But I, I tell one of the things that do when I teach leaders is I read a lot still, a lot of different things. And it is amazing to me how many times I see something from somewhere else that's applied to the industry that you're in. So you really have to have this, what I call a wide net of where you're getting information because you never know. I think, you know, in the beginning of the book, I talk about the anecdote. My wife and I are sitting there. She's watching TV and she sees this report from South Korea of doing drive through testing. Literally, that's how she says to me. She goes, that's like a really efficient way of doing COVID testing. You guys ought to think about that. We ended up doing the first drive through on the west coast, on the east coast of the country, which I did with with Como, because you know I had no idea. So all I'm saying is you don't know where information is going to come from. So the net has to be really wide, and then you have to be able to to somehow integrate that information to decide that that's the right decision. I can't tell you how you do that, but I know that it's an important issue to be able to do is to actually see what's important. It it goes back to the you know, the Steve Jobs things that never did a marketing survey because he knew what people wanted. And it's the same thing, of course, you know, with, with Henry Ford, when he said, if you ask people what they want, they're going to tell you they want a faster horse. You, you have to have the ability to see or understand what people want or what the market needs. I can't tell you how you do it, but I think one of the things is having a lot of information. Well, let, let's take that and go full circle then, because we started with talking about the epigraph at the front of the book. That's the quote that's on your was on your whiteboard for two years. COVID-19 is where intuition goes to die. Uh, but it's interesting to hear you say, I can't tell you how you do it, because to me, there's an element of of gut belief and gut feeling there intuition if you like in the book you stress the importance of listening to the little man recognizing the power of our ability to sense when something is wrong and following gut feelings so there there almost seems to be a disconnect there 
um, between the importance of intuition in some cases and the rapid change of 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 the state of the field of play, which means intuition doesn't necessarily play the same role. So, when did they come into play for you during the period, and did you have a means just to sense check that, or did you just go with your gut when it counted? So, when obviously we say COVID, where intuition goes to die, is, is that was more to me meaning every time I thought that something like we knew it was happening with COVID as a, you know, it would change. There's, I don't know, there's probably, there's a subtle difference. The, the difference is on the COVID rapid testing. When we looked at the environment, I, I knew that that's where it was going. It just had to go that way, right? So nobody knew for sure whether it was going to go that way. No one knew if it was successful. But if you look at what the market need was going to be, it was just obvious that that's where it's going to go. When I talk about the little man, the little man is, you know, is what I, as I always refer to it because I'm a surgeon by training. And it's a person that's, I always say, is the little person that's sitting on your shoulder whispering in your ear all day. And what they're doing is whispering to you. It's your inner voice is telling you what you know is true or what you think is true. So whether you call that gut reaction, intuition, or what I'll call, you know, the ability to assimilate a huge, which the brain is also amazing, is to is to assimilate a huge amount of information and make decisions which you may think is gut, but it's a or tuition. What you're doing is processing all this information if you listen to that inner voice. It turns out as a surgeon, uh, the easiest way to example is you operate on somebody and postoperatively day three, the patient doesn't look that great. And they have a fever, they're not doing well, and you, you desperately don't want to take the patient back to the operating room because basically you're saying something's wrong, and that's a big decision to make. So what you do is you look for every excuse known to mankind to figure out why you don't have to take the patient back to the operating room. If you're listening to your inner voice, you know that you have to do it. And that's the voice that's telling you, that's giving you this information. And it's very true in other circumstances in businesses. What is basically the right decision or where should you go? And for me, yes, point of care testing was the obvious decision. A lot of people didn't get into point of care testing. My major competitors did not do point of care testing. We did. And there were multiple times where that occurred. Uh, on the other side is like when I say intuition goes to die, nobody predicted that you'd have Omicron. Nobody predicted that you'd have Delta. Every time we sort of thought that we knew what was going to happen, we wake up and there'd be this new thing happen. It was very difficult. So there is a, they are a little bit antagonistic, but the only way I could tell you is by the examples I just gave you. John, thank you so much for all of that. I think you've given us a lot of information today to process as well. And, and one of the key things I try and achieve in the po podcast is to get a mixture of subject matter experts who will just dive into a, a topic or people like yourself who have got experiences to share that we can then take away what's relevant to us and our roles. And I think that there's a lot in there about particularly, uh, yes, you know, getting all of that data, getting all of the information, staying on top of things for when they change, doing things yourself, not relying on other people and that yes and mentality as well. So and much, much more. So I think a lot to process from that conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the privilege. It's been great. Thank you so much to John for joining me. As I said, there was so much to reflect on. It's hard to summarise it all at the end of a conversation. So much to consider that I think is transferable into what we all do, how we respond to changes of circumstances, changes of objectives, how we take people with us. I think there was a really important point there about the power 
of pulling together and having a wider goal in breaking down silos and all of the politics that comes into many internal professional relationships. What you do when you're not getting the support that you need from external stakeholders could also go for internal stakeholders as well. Where intuition comes into play and whether it is intuition or whether it is just the experiences and the expertise that you've built up over the course of your career. So thank you so much to John for joining me. I really thought it was a fascinating conversation. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, please rate and review us. Please talk about us on social media so we can attract more people to the Connected Leadership Podcast. And whatever you do, join us again next week for another fascinating conversation. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.